0: Hey guys, welcome to our last Kyle of the quarter. My name is Melissa. Pass out those Bibles. Hey, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, but I just wanted to say, um, Evan designed all of our slides for this whole quarter. Can we just like snaps for Evan? Thank you, Evan. So good. All right, so Bibles are going out. Um, I think I mentioned last time I taught up here that I grew up in Redmond, Washington, just outside of Seattle. Um, another fun fact about me is I'm also from the 1900s. <laughs> Who here has heard of the 1900s? Okay, <laughs> you're too young to say that. No, I'm, um, I'm scared to ask this question, but I'm going to anyways. Who here remembers the 1900s? Okay, I figured that would be amusing, no matter how many hands went up for me at least, and like tragically informative. So cool, cool. Um, before I tell a story about the ancient 1900s a question for you have you guys ever experienced something really life-changing or like a big event in your community Um, I know there have been a number of events that have like really impacted our country or like specific communities Um, Bless you blessings to you Um, or like if a if a school's gone through something or a town's gone through something like people remember those details really clearly it really like brings people together and stuff I know my parents, they talked about like President Kennedy's assassination as being like a big thing for that generation or the moon landing. Um, They remember those details. I saw my mom's school project one time. I was like, I can't picture you in elementary school doing a little diorama, but that's funny. Um, For me, speaking of the 1900s, the first of the big ones I experienced was Y2K. Have you guys heard of Y2K? Okay, so late 1999, everyone was legit worried that computers were going to crash and stores were going to collapse. And looting would commence and the world would probably end. And I was young, but I remember going to Kirkland Costco with my family, stocking up on essentials because people really believe once the clocks hit one one zero zero, like it was all over. Spoiler alert, we survived. Costco was still there in January 2000. Still there today, a little remodeled. New gas station, you know. Um, but for a while, that was all that was on the news. Everybody speculating about what's going to happen, like, you know say your last wishes or whatever, just in case. Um, But yeah, so that was like an interesting big deal. The biggest one I experienced though, for sure, the biggest memorable world-changing event was 9-11. You guys probably know, anybody who was old enough then, we like vividly remember where we were when it happened. Um, For me, I was in seventh grade, and I remember waking up to the news on my parents' bedroom, like I can still picture like the corner and the room, the like tiny little TV up there, and just like watching the footage of the planes crashing into the Twin Towers and, like, wondering, we were all, like, wondering, like, how many more are going to happen, because you, like, hear reports of, like, oh, no, there's another one, like, going towards the Pentagon, or, like, you would hear that happening in real time, and it felt like time just moved so eerily slowly. It was, like, it was, like, time just stood still on that day, and eventually went to school, and all we did that day in classes was just watch TV and watch the news, which was, like, a tiny bit cool, but mostly it was, like, this communal shock that we were going through. You, like, walked between classes in like, middle school, and it was just, like, zombie, like it's just so weird, so unique. Everybody was super stunned and speechless and scared. Um, I remember I went to youth group that night. My church in Bellevue, I remember instead of doing our normal service, we just sat in like this big circle on the floor and everybody just processed what happened. And um, I hope this isn't too traumatic to say, but like one of my friends shared that her dad was on a conference call early that morning with somebody in the Twin Towers and like heard screaming and heard the line go dead. Um, And like that was weird because in Seattle, we weren't even as impacted as like, people on the East Coast where, you know, so many people in those communities were majorly affected. But still, our entire country was together in this, like, sense of shock, and we felt more united than I've ever experienced before or since. And it was just such a crazy experience, like surreal, to experience the country going to war, like, right before your eyes, and to see airline travel transform. Can't just bring flowers to the gate anymore, <laughs> um, like you used to in all the movies. Um, everything just changed in a really short period of time. And the point is still now, like 22 years later, we all remember those days, like exactly what it looked like in your brain. You remember that. You remember what you were doing, those details, um, as, this, as our world changed right before our eyes. If you ask anybody, they can remember exactly what that day was like for them. And um, the reason I'm telling you this story is because tonight as we glimpse the final pages of the book of Matthew, I think that that sense of like experiencing 9-11 is a tiny glimpse into what the people in first century Jerusalem experience as they witnessed the final moments of Jesus's life and ministry. They knew they were watching something that would forever change their lives, their world, their power structures, their society, and the details stuck in their mind so clearly, far more strongly than minded of 9-11. So much so that, like in the years and decades afterwards, Jesus's followers, they would die for not going back on the details of what happened on those days. Even when all the powers and the government and everybody like they had nothing to gain on this world. Like, they had everything to gain by, by changing their story and backing out and saying, no, that didn't actually happen. They would not do that. They went to their deaths to defend and, like, stick to the details of those stories. Um, they held onto those details and the truth, even when it cost them everything. And those details really stuck in their minds. So, tonight is our last message from the, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to read the end of the book tonight, you guys. I feel like that was really heavy. I was <laughs> like, sorry if it's kind of heavy, but. Um, it's going to be a cool, a cool night to finish out the book. So as a reminder, what we're studying is this carefully crafted, detailed research biography about Jesus' life and ministry. It was authored by Matthew, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus who followed him for his whole ministry on earth. And among many things, Matthew's writing to answer the question, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the long-awaited king that they had been anticipating and, and longing for and praying for? By this point, we've seen dozens and dozens of references in Matthew's account, hyperlinking back to moments in Israel's history and biblical history where prophets spoke of something that was going to happen someday, and Jesus fulfilled it. Moses' life and story, Jesus and Israel's life and story, Jesus mirrored and fulfilled perfectly. And it's really clear by this point of our story tonight that Jesus has fulfilled more ancient prophecies and promises than anyone else imaginable. Last Chi Caden taught a really awesome message capturing what Jesus' life and ministry have been culminating toward. Jesus says he's going to die as a ransom for many. He is the new Passover lamb whose broken body and shed blood would make the way for us being saved from death and freed from slavery to sin. And that his body and blood would invite us into a new covenant with God where we can become his people and live in a new freed way in his kingdom. So tonight, as we finish out the story, um, I just wanted to recap kind of what happened from when Caden left off to where we're going to pick up tonight. So, recapping the last kind of day or so in Jesus's life um, in chapter 26. And just a heads up: there's a little bit of dark stuff that happens and some hard things, but that's because this is a real story, and the biblical authors don't really put like a, a happy filter over things. They they stick to the truth. Um, and so, just a few of the things that have happened leading up to where we'll pick up the story tonight in 27:11. Um, so, Judas, one of Jesus's 12 disciples, he made a sneaky backdoor deal to betray Jesus. Spoiler alert, he was the Among Us imposter in that very historically accurate painting that we saw last time. So he, he promised to betray his friend and king for 30 pieces of silver. And then Jesus pr- predicted that Peter would deny him three times. Peter's like, no way. Jesus like, yeah, wait, you're going to do. Um, then Jesus led his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he prayed earnestly to God about what's about to go down. He prayed about the sacrifice he knew he was going to have to live out. And the disciples fell asleep twice, which was an L, twice. But Jesus stayed on mission, and he's like, all right, guys, rise, let's go. Here comes my my betrayer. Then in verse 47, Judas walks up leading this huge armed crowd, like fully armed to arrest Jesus. Judas went up and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed Jesus. And that was a signal for the mob to arrest him. That's when Peter cut off a guy's ear, like um, Caden mentioned, trying to protect Jesus, and Jesus tells him, hey, put your sword back in its place. Because I'm telling you, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Jesus says, do you not think I cannot call on my father God? And he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels. Pause. I try to avoid math when possible. I think I've told you this before. But Tim did the math. And that's over 60,000 angels. Jesus is saying, like, don't you realize I don't need your sword? Like, I could call God and he would, like, dispose those guys right like that for me. And then he keeps going. But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And the disciples all bounced. They all deserted him and fled. And Jesus is left alone and captured. After that, Jesus was put on trial before the high priest, the religious high priest. And they brought in tons of false witnesses and tried to trap Jesus, but Jesus never, ever budged. And the high priest forced Jesus into a corner. He said, hey, admit under oath. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus says he is. And he says, you'll actually see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And at that, the high priest tore open his clothes at this apparent blasphemy and said he's worthy being put to death he's claiming to be the son of God and then they beat Jesus and spit on Jesus and mocked him then Peter disowned Jesus three times like Jesus said was going to happen and at the start of chapter 27 um, Judas the imposter he got really intense buyer's remorse and he tried to give back the pieces of silver to the chief priest that he betrayed Jesus to and he says I have sinned I have betrayed innocent blood and they say that's on you bro so Judas goes away, and, and he kills himself in his intense regret and agony. Um, so that's a lot of intense things that have just happened um, as we're picking up the story tonight. But we're going to begin reading in 2711, um, where Jesus is going to go on trial before the Roman governor Pilate. So remember, we've got the Jewish religious elite, like those authorities who have already put him on trial. They've already sentenced him to death. And then we also have the occupying Roman Empire guys, and so he's now going to be on trial in front of the governor there. So we're going to read 2711 all the way through the end of Matthew. Matthew. So guys, buckle up. It's going to be a few minutes of reading straight, but this story is too good to skip any of. So we're just going to read the rest of it. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner to the crowd, chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest they had handed Jesus, the Messiah, over to him. When Pilate was sitting at the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, mood, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns, and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, a replacement Simon Peter, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come now, down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. I forgot to look up how to pronounce that, so just read those words. And then we're going to skip it. I don't want to butcher it. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. They filled it with wine and vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the Roman centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and saw all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there. Watching from a distance, they had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Okay, take a guard, Pilate said. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a big sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is like the only time I've I've read that aloud without crying in my practice for this message. So um, I want to, in this moment, just recap some of the most important things or some of the things that we just read about. Um, I noticed that Matthew includes so many reactions of real people as they witness what happens in these days. So I just want to review those reactions um, to start. So starting with Jesus' trial before Pilate, Pilate gave the crowd a choice. We're talking about the crowd's reaction right now. He said, okay, guys, which prisoner do you want me to release to you? On one hand, we have Jesus Barabbas, who we learned from Mark's um, gospel, his biography of Jesus, that Barabbas was an insurrectionist and a murderer. And then on the other hand, we have Jesus of Nazareth, the rabbi who is revealing himself to be the Messiah. The crowd had a choice between two Jesuses. And the crowd chose the murderer Barabbas, not the innocent Christ, to be released to them. And they condemned the innocent Christ to death by crucifixion. One thing that sticks out to me with this is it wasn't all the relig- the roman authorities and soldiers who killed jesus it wasn't only the jewish religious elite- elites who wanted it, who killed him it was also the crowd real people kind of like us who lived in jerusalem who also screamed for his crucifixion normal people did you notice how everybody in this story is guilty basically except for jesus did you hear all the whispers throughout the story of people realizing in their gut this guy is innocent i mean there's judas going back to try to uh, Like undo his his deal. There's Pilate saying, this guy's innocent, I'm washing my hands with this. There's Pilate's wife. And just like our Passover lamb, when Jesus died, the sinner goes free. When Jesus died, Barabbas goes free. When he died, we go free. Everybody there was guilty. Everybody had blood on their hands, but that's the thing. By Jesus' death, redemption is offered to all. What happened to Barabbas is offered to every single one of us. Jesus' great Passover action, like Caden was saying, it kind of makes a way through the Red Sea of sin and death. And like Caden said, it's like a new exodus inviting Barabbas and all of us to walk through to freedom. What about the Roman soldiers' reactions? How did they respond to Jesus? Well, we saw once Jesus was turned over to the soldiers, they, they cruelly mocked him. They dressed him up as like a parody king with things like a crown made of thorns, ouch, and a staff in his hand that they just hit him on the head a bunch with. They mocked him and beat him and showed him exactly what the Roman Empire thinks of any other would-be kings. This is the same Jesus who just a few days ago was healing people and teaching people and, and confronting corrupt authorities in the temple um, just days before, and now hours before this gruesome and lonely death, the soldiers wrote, King of the Jews, and a sign. Condemned prisoners would often have like, a sign above them that would like, say what their crime was. And for Jesus, Pilate and the soldiers saw his crime as claiming to be Israel's real king. So what does Matthew, our author, want us to see in this? Well, Jesus truly is Israel's king. This ironic poke is also a sober truth. And ironically, this crucifixion is the very way that his kingdom would be established. Just like Jesus predicted back in chapter 20, when I preached on last time, to James and John's like super over mom, he was in fact enthroned um, with someone on his right hand and his left. But the throne he had in mind was this cross why? Why does God's kingdom need to be established this way? As one of my commentaries that I read said, if it's God's kingdom, it would come about by God's means. And the means the one true God chooses to use are the means of self-giving love. Friends, our God is a God of self-giving love. This is his way. We see Jesus die on the cross as he publicly predicted multiple times. This is Jesus. This is my king. This is the king of the Jews, the king of all creation. The next on the list of reactions that we see is an interesting one um, because right the second that he died, a few things happened visibly in the physical, natural world. I have another quote from a commentary by N.T. Wright. It says, Jesus remained faithful to the end of his God-given mission. Jesus takes with him into the darkness of death, He takes the sin of the world, my sin, your sin, the sin of countless millions, the weight that is hung around the world's neck and dragged it down to destruction, and the world itself, the physical, natural world, is the first to respond. I know that's a lot, commentaries and super smart people, it takes a few times reading it, but Jesus took all of that sin and he, he defeated it in death, and the physical world literally was the first one to respond. What did we see? We saw darkness over the lands from 12 to 3 p.m., even for an eclipse. That's a long, weird time for darkness, even in Alaska, probably. We saw a massive earthquake. The earth shook. The earth shook. The huge, another commentary said it was like seven-story tall building. This incredibly huge curtain in the temple was spontaneously torn from top to bottom, Um, and I'll explain more about that later. Dead people rose from their graves. That's wild. That's, that's one of the oddest things I've ever read in the Bible, I have to say. And one of the things that shows, it shows the very first evidence that Jesus had accomplished his mission. He defeated death. And it shows us our future resurrection hope. Jesus' death and resurrection is the key to new life. It's our hope of, of resurrection and to one day everlasting life. Jesus' death changed the shape of our world. The next reaction in the list, um, the soldiers who crucified him. They had like a a 2.0, a follow-up reaction worth noting. Remember, this is the Roman Empire. This is their job. This isn't their first day on the job. Like, they were very good at killing threats to Rome. Um, They knew what they were doing. This was their 9 to 5. They had crucified criminals and threats to Rome many, many, many times. But their reaction in this text is unlike any other day, right? Today transformed from another day at the office to a shocking revelation. When they witnessed this man die on the cross... And they witnessed everything that happened around them in that moment. Verse 54 says they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. And this powerful moment um, is such a little glimpse to showing forward how Jesus' death and resurrection and his kingdom family is not just for the Jews. It's for everyone outside Israel too, even those who crucified him. Jesus died for all and faith and joining God's kingdom is, is for everybody from every background. Another reaction, we see the religious leaders. I just wanna say these guys get the overthinking award. I'm an overthinker, but I hand it to them in this story. Because man, they worked very, very hard. They were busy little beavers trying to keep any of this from happening, other than him dying. They were very sure they wanted to make him very dead. And then once he was very dead, they didn't stop there and be like, "Hey, we won. They made sure, okay, now that he's dead, (laughs) what are all the chess moves that could happen after this? They were professional overthinkers mapping out every possible scenario. And that led them to creating this mission impossible, maximum security situation at the tomb. They rolled this humongous stone over, put a seal on it so everybody would see, you touch this, you even look at this, you answer to the full power of the Roman Empire. But how do you guard against God accomplishing his mission? I don't know. God strikes the ground with a violent earthquake, sends a super jacked angel who could roll back the stone and just sits just chilling on it. I mean, again, these are beefy guys who knew what they were doing. They're they're like dead men on the ground. I don't know exactly what that looked like or what was happening to them, but it doesn't sound pleasant. We see the human reactions in everything that got to everything that God is doing in this story. They tried to prevent it by hiring the muscle, putting the stone, and then putting the seal, and then when God intervenes anyway, and their their beefy muscle guards are just out of commission. That's some unusual fear and terror. Similar to other accounts in the Bible, when people would encounter an angel, and an angel comes, they're like, "Do not fear." And people are always like, "Too late." Um, and then the angel he tells the news to some amazing, devoted women. That's the next reaction we have. Honestly, that's a whole other sermon about how countercultural our God is, and how Jesus intentionally elevated the place of women in society to just a crazy for that society amount. Um, NT writes commentary said, "Throughout the story, it's actually the women who speak or act truly." There's the unnamed woman who anoints Jesus. There's a servant girl who challenges Peter's denial. Um, There's the woman at the cross and beside the tomb. Even Pilate's wife, Pilate's wife, she sends a message about Jesus' innocence. Society would never have given women in that day the dignity of being the first ones to see the risen king of creation, the first ones to worship him, the, the honor of carrying the most prestigious, precious message of the planet, declaring his arrival to his followers. That's some crazy honor. I love that about God um last reaction when his disciples see him they they believed in him and they worshiped him and some doubted they're just still humans like us right this is hard stuff to wrap our minds around sometimes we need more faith doubting and wrestling with things is normal and part of life when we're believing in a god we can't see or touch so now that we've walked through all those reactions i want us to think about our reactions here tonight how are we going to respond tonight how do you respond to this crucified and risen king Last message, Caden was saying that Jesus intended his followers to see themselves all as participants at the Last Supper table. Um, just like generations of Israelites would all see themselves at the Passover table and all as part of the Exodus generation, we all are seeing ourselves at the Last Supper table with Jesus. And although it pains me to, to say this or even think it, we do need to see ourselves in this story a little bit, guys. We are human. I, I hate to even think this but I know my past. I know my lowest moments. I know that I can be there in the crowd begging for Pilate to release a murderer instead of the author of life. We have all rejected Jesus' lordship in, in different ways through making our own choice to sin and be the king of our lives rather than submitting to his good, kind rule. It's really hard to give up the throne of your life, even to welcome the best king in existence to take the throne. But there's good news packed all throughout the Bible. One is Romans 3, 20, 22 to 24. It says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, which just means non-Jew. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came from Jesus Christ. Redemption speaks to what Caden mentioned last time. Jesus came to die and give his life as a ransom for many. Question, do free people need a ransom? I've only heard of, of people needing ransom if you're like a hostage. Like Liam Neeson's there, like it's an intense, like you're a hostage, you need ransoming. You can't do it on your own. And we have all chosen to become captives to sin, even if we don't realize that we're living ruled by it. But Jesus came, he died to pay that fee to set us free. And through his death and resurrection, we can be fully justified. What else does the story mean for us tonight as we, as we respond? There are literally millions of nuances to this story, and, and it takes a joyful lifetime of learning to live out and, and understand the freedom, life, and victory that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. It never gets boring. Um, but just two things I want us to focus on tonight um, before we close. The first is that we live in a torn curtain world. Remember, I said that I'd explain what it meant that at the moment Jesus died, that big, beefy curtain in, I said beefy a lot of times, anyways. The huge curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. There is so much I could say and nerd out about this, but I won't. Um, But in essence, Jesus' death and resurrection, it meant an end to the old temple system. That system was a miniature pointing to what Jesus would actually fully do. Jesus had already declared judgment over the temple a few days before, which Tim talked about in his message a few weeks ago. And like I said, in that old system, there were these massively tall, thick curtains that separated people from the presence of God. Otherwise, people would die by encountering God's holy, incredible presence in our sinful state. But when Jesus died, that massive curtain was split in two from the top to the bottom, um, which points that it was, it was God's action in tearing it open. There are so many things this symbolizes and points to. Just like every single ounce of Jesus' life and ministry is just, is just dripping in context and meaning. My favorite verse about this, though, um, that I'll give you guys tonight is Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that place where God's presence dwelled, um, we have confidence to enter there by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, not the corrupt high priest who like paid a bunch of false witnesses, but the true high priest revealed to be Jesus. Since we got Jesus as our high priest, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, that blood of our Passover lamb purifies us and frees us from slavery to sin and the stain of sin. Jesus' death has opened the previously limited presence of God to us because he came to us. God in a bod came to us. He brought God's kingdom right to our toes. He brought it right to us. And he died, the death needed to bear our sin and evil and wickedness of our world and usher in God's new way. Friends, if you believe in him, there is nothing that separates you from the presence of God anymore. There is nothing that separates you from God's full, unlimited love anymore. There's so many verses that I could go to, just two off the top of my head that I wrote down, are in Romans 8. Romans 8, 1-3 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of, sin, of a spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by sinful flesh, um, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, a.k.a. God and Abod, um, to be a sin offering. And Romans 8 ends by saying, um, verses 31 through 39, I'm just going to summarize it because it's long. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all— how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? What could separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives us a huge list of things, and then the answer is no. Um, nothing, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death or life, another huge list of, of big things, no powers, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have put your faith in Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord, then you have died with him and you live with him. Nothing can separate you from the full love of God. Do you truly believe that? Personally, you guys, I'm so glad to live in a torn curtain world. Jesus' love is better than anything else in this life. And although I didn't deserve to be set free, I deserve to die. I'm so grateful that our God, his love is countercultural, it's otherworldly. He gave his own self in love for us. This is our King. The very last thing that this means to us, um, before we wrap up very soon, is that we join Jesus' story and build his kingdom. So at this moment, you guys, our next steps, like, in applying this message, they kind of are different depending on where we're at tonight. So I kind of have three different categories. The first one is if you're somebody who's, like, been exploring Jesus' this quarter, um, right now, as Matthew's testimony has just concluded, he's he just put down the pen, he's done with his story, I'd ask you, think about where are you at tonight? we've covered a lot over these weeks. We've seen a lot about Jesus. Um, Where are you at? Where are you at in thinking about him, believing in him? Do you see him the way that Matthew and the other eyewitnesses describe him as? What do you think? Where are you at tonight? Um, Have you embraced the truth of his victory? So like this is the one I just talked about um, in the point number one. If you're somebody who believes in Jesus, do you realize that nothing separates you from his love? Do you realize that you're living in a torn curtain world? There's not a filter or barrier between you and God's love anymore. If you're like yes to one and yes to two, then this is where the second point is for us. If you're somebody who believes in him and right now you're living in Jesus' life and love, then our next step is to find ourselves right there on the mountain with Jesus 12 dudes at the beginning of chapter 28, or the end of chapter 28. Um, as the worship team comes on up, um, the book ends by showing how Jesus handed the baton off to the disciples. He always planned it to be this way. Um, he hands, he commissions them to continue the ministry that he began, multiplying disciples among every nation and tribe and tongue and people group on this planet. And Jesus says in Matthew 28 through 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus intends us to actively join his kingdom mission. We get to be disciples who make more disciples. We get to share to every culture and corner of this earth about the good king who died for us. We join his life and live the new way of humanity and disciple making that he initiated. We get to make his kingdom known, share the story, talk about the God who's changed our lives. This is the great commission that he gave us. This news is just too good to sit on. So as we close tonight, I want us to think about our response to this crucified and risen King Jesus. Um, I kind of just briefly talked through those, but just put the reflection questions up on the screen um, and just choose the one that um, you want to journal about tonight. So what is your response? First one is, what do you think of Jesus? If you're still checking out what you think of him and following him, just write out your reactions to the events in the story and and what you see in his character, his his culture, his ways. Second one is, what does the torn curtain reality mean for you? Do you believe that nothing separates you from his love? And if you believe it in your head, are you living it in your life, in your heart? And last one is, how will you join his kingdom mission? How can you grow as a disciple who makes more disciples? There are so many possibilities for that. I mean, just a couple that I'll list. Um, sorry, worship team. Um, you might be like, okay, this quarter, I went to core like three times. Maybe next quarter... Instead of like going to core if it works out, I'm gonna like do my homework around core. I'm gonna go home to the West Side around core. I'm gonna like commit to be there every week so I can grow. You might be like, I'm gonna go to discipleship class and learn all of the things that blew Brandon and Caden and everybody else's minds. Um, you might be like, hey, I'm gonna go home for Christmas. I need to tell my family, I need to tell my old friends why I'm different now and what has to change in my life and in my activities when I go back to my old context. There might be somebody that in your classes or a coworker that Jesus wants you to start spending time with and investing in and sharing, um, about him with. There's, there's so many possibilities. I just want to give you guys a few ideas and I will pray as we transition to worship and journaling. King Jesus, um, I honestly don't even know how to pray to summarize what we just read about and, and what you did. Um, you are so good. I just want to worship you for being a God who, of self-giving love, um, someone who didn't consider everything that you had as something to, like, Keep, but you chose to like downsize your divinity into humanity and just become like us so that we could finally be, become, like, be able to be, join a relationship with you again, come into your family, be reconciled, and set free. Thank you for redeeming me and paying the, the ransom for me and for all of us here tonight. I pray you'd help all of us process where you're, you're speaking to us, King Jesus. Um, you, you're still the king, you're still on the throne. I pray that you would just be working in each of our minds and hearts as we process. Um, how you want us to hear you, how you want us to respond to you, and, and live for you. Praise your name. Amen.